You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. I have been away more than I've been here in the last two months. I know Flying, you have. It, it's crazy. I, I just got back yesterday from, from Florida, and I have been flying. Here's the thing I've noticed. TSA check-in is as inconsistent as it could be. Every, I think every station makes up their own <laughs> rules. So I used to get frustrated at that too, because you go one place and they're, first of all, they're always mad at you. They are always mad. A hundred percent. They are pissed off that you don't know the rules that they just made up. That are different than the airport that you just oh, were at okay. last so, month. So here you go. All right. This just happened yesterday. I'm checking in. And I go through the thing and they've got all the gray bins stacked up at the front end of the table. Yes. Okay. All right. So I grab a bin, of of course, because there's a big stack of them at the front. (laughs) And the guy barks at me because like, you don't need a bin. This is pre-check. You don't need a bin. What? I'm like, oh, I said, you know, you understand my confusion because there's a big stack of bins here. (laughs) (laughs) Forgive me. Forgive me. But flying used to be some, I know this has been beat to death, but flying used to be so much more fun. I was going on a trip uh, several years ago. So we were in uh, Cancun. So I was in with a bunch of guys and we were being scuba diving and all this. And one of the guys bought a pair of like lizard boots in in cancun right uh-huh. for i don't know like two or three hundred bucks <laughs> and he was real proud of him he was showing everybody right yeah. so so we're <laughs> we're going through and i get to the the check this is before tsa this is in cancun and i uh i go up to the guy and i said all right you see my friend back here he goes yeah see uh all right he's got a pair of boots in his luggage what i want you to do is take these boots out and tell him that he can't take him out of the country. <laughs> so, so the guy's like, oh, see, yes, all right. Yeah. And and so he, <laughs> I go and I kind of get a little bit away as so I'm kind of yeah. by the door. And uh, my friend gets up there. And sure enough, this guy, he's like playing it right. All right. He unzips the guy's luggage. He's digging through, pulls out his underwear and his shorts <laughs> and his T-shirts, all the stuff. And he gets to the boots. And he's like, oh, no, 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 senor. No, 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 no. <laughs> And he's waving his finger at him and he's like, no, no, no. And my friend's like backing up and putting his hands. He's like, I didn't, you know, what did I do? And the guy's, you know, like he's really giving, giving him the business. But then the guy breaks and, and the TSA guy turns to me and goes, oh, you're amigo. You're amigo. And he's pointing to me. He gives me up. So now my, now my friend like knows I set him up. So we're coming back into DFW. And I've, I had this ridiculous scuba knife that yeah. I would wear on my, le- you know, oh, it was, it was stupid. It was like. So you could feel like a superhero. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It was like a Rambo eight, eight, 18 inch knife, that, n- unnecessary as anything. And it was, and everybody was making fun of me the whole trip. Like, oh, yes. you know, look at this stupid knife. And so it was in my luggage, you know, my check luggage, not obviously in my carry on. Yeah. Right. Uh, but they were giving me, you know, they were giving me a hard time saying, oh, you know, I don't know. They're going to let you fly back into the U.S. with this big knife in your luggage, even though it's in your check. And so we're coming in to land at DFW and they come over the announcements. No. And they say, all right, you know, we're coming into DFW. We should be landing in just a few moments. So, you know, we'll be at gate, you know, D47, blah, 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 blah. You know, and here's the weather, you know, 75 degrees. And they go, uh, and will passenger Sean Smith please stay on the plane? 
security has some questions for you. So please do not deboard the plane. <laughs> I'm like, oh no. So all my all my buddies are passing me on the plane as they're leaving. They're yeah. like, oh man, what did you do? And just like, was it the knife? And did you bring the knife? Did you, you know, they're asking me about the knife and they're like, oh man, what did you do? So everybody gets off the plane. Everybody. I'm still sitting there, you know, in, in you know, yeah. 14E or whatever, just in the, on this empty plane. Yeah. I'm like, I think I could just leave. <laughs> you know, they won't. You know, they're so, not coming for they're me. They're not coming for me. And if they do, I'll just be gone. I'm just going to get out of here. So Running I, from the cops. So I just gra- yeah. I grab, my, grab my bag and I exit the plane. I, I get off the plane. When I get into the airport from the jetway, the entire plane is there. (laughs) (laughs) The flight attendant, the the pilot, they're all sitting there just laughing their ass off at me. They're like, ah. (laughs) Oh, times were more fun. Back in the day, (laughs) when you could joke about terrorism. Oh, oh, you could joke about having a big knife on the plane. One of the things that you always instilled in our family and that I, I think I might be the only one that picked up up on was ruthlessly making fun of each other oh yeah you and, have to and i makes love it, it tough I makes love it tough and and you know what i i relish the moments where you're the one that makes fun of me and i'm the victim of a joke because that's a moment where we get to bond and we're closer for it even and if it's if it's my sli- the last slice of cake that i was saving for myself that got stolen from me it's funny and and among many things you you taught you taught me that oh, and good. and and my children will be instilled with the same values. It'll and today we talked with Nike Anani about instilling values in the next generation of our families. You like how I segued that? I, I like that. Finally. I wasn't sure how you were going to pull this one off, but you oh, did it. You know, a professional. Uh, Nike Anani is an author, a speaker, a consultant, and a business strategist. She is a top 100 global family business consultant and entrepreneur. She helps her clients bridge the gap between senior and younger generations so they can communicate, collaborate, and collectively gain clarity to increase profit and productivity in their family businesses. She works privately with select family businesses who engage her not only because of her extensive professional training, but also because of her practical experience as both a business founder and a next gen this gives her unique qualities to empathize with both generations and act as a connector she's passionate about diversity and celebrates the uniqueness in every individual family and business and as such her business approach is extremely customized for each client she talked with us about defining our family's legacy establishing a family culture Codifying what's important to your familiar trajectory, learning from prior generations, fighting against complacency and overcoming family conflict. All three of us have our own experiences with family businesses, but this is a wonderful listen, even for families that don't have family businesses. There's something that you can learn from this episode about transferring the values and and principles that are important to you uh, to your next generation. And uh, I'm really thankful for the work that Nikkei is doing to bring that more to the forefront uh, in, in our popular conversation. I know you're going to learn a lot from this episode, so stick around. My name is Sanger Smith. As always, I'm with my dad, Sean Smith. This is Decidedly. Nikkei. Hi, it's awesome to be here. 
Yeah, we're glad to have you. I I wish that I knew about your work when Sean and I were going through our own business transition. That that would have been good to know. Expert. If we had if we had trusted somebody who's been there before and knows how to knows how to do that for we, family business. We muddled through it and uh, I think we did okay. But I well, we're both still here hanging out with each other. So that's a big, <laughs> that's a win. Is. I sold my business about two and a half years ago and Sanger was one of the recipients of that process and took that I don't victim. victim victim of the <laughs> or victim. Kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> 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 Absolutely kidding. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think, you know, we, we try to be as thoughtful as possible about that. But I, I'm sure there were things that we that we missed as we went through and, you know, tried to make that transition. Yeah, I'm very interested. So you work with family businesses, specifically African family businesses, and help guide them through that transitionary period where the next generation is is taking the reins. There's a lot of components of that I'm interested in. First, African businesses. Are these Afro-European businesses, African-American businesses, I'll businesses provide- in Africa? Right. So I moved to the U.S. 18 months ago from Africa. So historically, my clientele were African businesses navigating generational transition. So founders letting go and bringing in the next generation to take over leadership or ownership or like you went through yourself, um, Sean, selling your business and things of the like. I transitioned over to Austin, Texas about 18 months ago. And so my clientele are, are not just Africans. Um, the, the, I mean, regardless of where folks are from, the issues, the complexities that come with navigating generational transitions are 99, 90 to 99% universal. Issues around identity, issues around contribution, issues around equity and fairness, so to speak, issues on family dynamics, issues on how do we diversify and take this forward, um, how do we deal with talent and things of the like. So that's my jam and that's what I love to do. Yeah, that's a huge role. It's a huge undertaking that, you know, going at it alone can be daunting, right? You know, going through a business transition alone is a big event, right? That's a huge life transition. Going through a generational transition within a business is necessarily a once in a lifetime moment. You're not going to do it more than once, right? You're not going to transfer. Well, unless until the next generation is transferring, at which point it's a new moment for them, right? So how did you get started in focusing on that? What What called you to make that your focus? Yeah, my personal experience. So I was born into a business family. My dad was the founder of our enterprise the year I was born, precisely. So we have construction business, real estate development company, and engineering consulting. You can probably hear, um, so we're Nigerian by origin. So this was in Lagos, Nigeria. But I moved to the UK when I was nine with my mom and my brothers. And dad continued to build out the business. And I started my career in your world, financial planning and tax planning. Yeah. Um, but unlike you guys, I didn't really enjoy it. <laughs> and, <laughs> so I'm the equivalent of a CPA, but it's a useful skill to have, I, I must say. Cut a long story short, as soon as I qualified as a CPA in London, I moved back to Nigeria to work with my dad in our family business. 
And I set up our family office um, to oversee strategic business planning and the operational businesses, but also to look at the investment planning. And it was my first hand experience, like integrating as a successor that I was like, whoa, um, issues that are a big deal at Deloitte mean nothing with my dad. But mm, issues what, what that do you mean? mean... So decisions that would take us months to make at Deloitte would be made like this with my yeah. dad. <laughs> right. And then like decisions an and the inverse also <laughs> would hold. And I'm like, what in the world is going on here? Like, am I getting something wrong? Like the same kind of emails I'd write at Deloitte just were not like, he'd like be like, yeah, acknowledge with thanks, acknowledge with thanks. I'm like, what does that mean? Like, when are we going to move the needle? Am I, when am I going to get the go ahead to implement, like bringing more technology to the firm, diversifying the wealth and things like that. And then it was when a friend of mine pointed me to the direction of family businesses and the whole science of family businesses and how when you have the confluence of family and business, it does change the dynamics in terms of leadership, decision-making, integration, and so on and so forth. And I was like, ah, so that's what's been going on here. And I also grappled a lot with, as a successor, um, feeling like I was in the shadow of his success and not feeling like I was my own person and I could make my own unique stamp. And a lot of that was due to, for the first time in my life, um, at the age of 24, I was in his sphere of influence because all the while, whilst I was in the UK, I was on my own and, you know, Mm -hmm. had my own career and had my own self-determination, had my own autonomy. And coming into his world was, it was very difficult for me to find my voice, to find my feet, to um, be able to champion change and to collaborate with him. And it was when, due to all of that, I became super passionate, started reading up on family enterprises and joined a number of communities, um, trained up as an advisor with Family Firm Institute here in the US and Purposeful Planning Institute as well here. And I joined YPO and started really working on myself working on my clarity, my confidence, and my communication so that we could collaborate and start thinking, what is our shared family legacy? Not just what does dad want, um, bringing all family members to the table and actively co-creating the future that we wanted to see. And that was how my journey started. So I started serving other next gens five years ago in the areas of ownership, leadership, and partnership. Did you find that there was friction during that period of time where there was overlap in that transition of business where your your dad the the founder of the business had been making you know very quick decisions as you were saying and then you're coming in and I'm sure you're wanting to put your stamp on the business or at the same time learn how the business is operating and how he was making decisions uh, and be respectful to that history but to move the business forward did you find that that was a, a point of friction? Indeed, it was like a power tussle, right? Where I felt like, well, I had a lot more agency and autonomy in a third-party company. I know what I'm doing. But the truth of the matter is um, I didn't know what I was doing (laughs) 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 because I was adapting from a different culture, Um, moving from the UK to Nigeria. um, I'd never worked in construction, so I had a lot to learn um, in construction and in real estate. 
and work moving from corporate to family enterprise, completely different, um, different stakeholders, a lot more stakeholders in the family enterprise, because I was running the family office, the family office oversaw strategic business planning of the operating businesses. And also I would be having conversations with the family. I'd also be um, quarterbacking the third party advisors, like the bankers, the lawyers and, and things like that. So there was a lot of development I had to do myself to get to a point where I could confidently lead. But even at that, what you're alluding to, this kind of like conflict, we did see things very differently. I mean, my dad has a completely different leadership style to me. Um, the opportunities that I would have an eye for were different from what he would. But we found a way of honestly collaborating and not necessarily each having our way but finding that middle ground that worked for what was best for the business. That had to have been a, a tough time coming from, I would, I would assume a lot of cultural differences between the UK and Nigeria. And I would, I would also assume just based on my experience with construction industry here is that it's primarily male dominated is that you're coming in with a different culture and being a woman, that had to be challenging to sort of take the reins. Yeah, but for some context, I had always navigated being an other and never being part of the fold, even in the UK, right? So the feeling of um, culture shock and culture change, I dealt with it all my life. Um, the feeling of um, being the only one that is of color in the room, mm. I dealt with that all my life. So coming into a space where it was male dominated wasn't particularly intimidating for me. It was just the loneliness was what I just couldn't grab my head around, especially as a successor, was that I felt like a lot of folks saw me and saw me as the path to my dad. Like it was always mm -hmm. your so-and-so's daughter. It's like, no, 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 I'm my own person. I'm 25 years old. Like <laughs> I have my own identity. I have my own values. I have my own way of doing things. Um, and there was also this projection of this life of ease or that you're this um, entitled spoiled yeah. brat. There was always those like negative um, prejudices that I was constantly fighting against and I found that really lonely and alienating that was yeah. the element of it that I really struggled with not the the construction bit I actually saw it as it was I was jumping in the deep end and learning something brand new and it was exciting because I'd never really worked in something that was so being at the forefront of the action I was always in an, in an office in this high story building in the city of London and like you know, having calls with clients halfway across the world, but was never close to the action. But for the first time, I, I got to be where the action was. And I really enjoyed that going to sites and, you know, being with the guys and wearing the hard hats and, and all the safety equipment and things like that. Yeah, those feelings of isolation and loneliness. I think that's a lot of like, young people deal with that in all different types of families. It's amplified in a family business. It's, it's amplified, but that feeling of, oh, you know, how do I break away from the identity of my parents? How do I break away from the identity that maybe my, wasn't my parents, but is the identity that my parents want me to have. And, and some right. parents are very open about that. I was fortunate enough to have a dad who didn't tell me, you know, every day, <laughs> this is who you're going to be. This is what you, he didn't, he wasn't demanding of me and saying, this is what you have to become of your life. But 
I mean, you hear those stories all the time in different cultures say, you're going to grow up and you're going to be a doctor. Right. It, it, well, geez, man, if that's, if that's how you grow up, that's hard. But in a family business, it's, it's a unique dynamic because um, I feel like it, it's a sometimes self-imposed, right? Sometimes even if you're like me, you don't have a dad who's, who's being demanding um, or saying, hey, this is what you've got to do with your life. It's like there's those external factors, like what you were saying with other people saying, oh, man, uh, Nika is just a spoiled brat. She's had everything mm-hmm. handed to her. Whether that's true or not, there's always that's always going to be something that people say. I remember one time um, working in in our family business and um, an employee who I had a, a gr- good relationship with. And now that I'm not even in the, the business anymore, still have a good relationship with. He comes up to me and he goes, so, man, um, you know, he's probably 15 years older than me, too which is its own challenge, right? He goes, so like, how much do you think nepotism had to do with you being in this position? And he's not trying to be, he wasn't even trying to be mean. Mm -hmm. And I just, I laughed at him. I said, a lot? (laughs) (laughs) Duh. (laughs) I said, I'm the son of the founder. What am I going to say? No, I earned this all on my own, man. This was, if my, he evaluated me by the merits of my resume and nothing else. Like I'm his son. What do you, you, you gotta be smoking crack to think that that had nothing to do with it. Of course. And if you can't admit that to yourself when you're in that position, oh, you're going to fail. Well, I, I think, you know, you mentioned several times to me that you made decisions purposefully because you knew that, because that was so obvious that you wanted to. Uh, justify your role and you worked harder, you made decisions to make things more difficult for yourself uh, Mm. on purpose. It gave me a chip on my shoulder for sure. What do you mean a chip on your shoulder? Like, because I knew that people were going to say, you know, Nikkei knows what I mean. They're going to say, they're going to say I didn't earn it. They're going to say it's easy. They're going to say that you don't have the experience necessary for the position. They're going to say whatever they're going to say. And sometimes the people who are saying that are the people that I'm tasked with leading the people right. that I'm tasked with hiring and firing, the people who I have to go over and say, you're not doing as good of a job as I know you can do. And if those people in the back of their mind are saying, Nikkei just, you know, spoiled brat, had everything handed to her, then she can't lead. And, and I knew I was going to be in that position. So I said, I've got to work not only harder than everybody else who wants this position, I've got to work harder than anyone else is ever willing to work because I don't want... I know they're going to say it no matter what. Mm-hmm. I know they're going to say it no matter what. The only thing that I'm in control of is my effort. You know, the only thing that I can control is what I do. And so I'm going to be even better than I need to be just to lessen that talk a little bit. And, and I knew I was going to have to work harder to build credibility with, and with people who, you know, Nikkei, you left and came back. I worked in my family business, started when I was 14. (laughs) So some of these employees, they're like, not only are you the spoiled brat son of the owner, I remember when you had the lowest job. I remember when you were cleaning the gutters. I remember when you were, you know, painting the, you know, walls of the office and cleaning toilets and whatever. Like, I remember when you were the, the low man on the totem pole, which being the low man on the totem pole and being then working your way up. That's a challenge too, if you don't have the family business dynamic. 
100% a lot of what you said so resonates with that chip on your shoulder and feeling this pressure to work twice as hard and to prove yourself to others whilst leading people that are much older than you have been entrenched in the family enterprise for much longer than you knew for me um, my dad started our business when I was a baby so a lot of these people knew me in diapers like they knew yeah. me from like when I was going to school and when I was a young girl and then I come back and then it's like I'm tasked with leading them. And I found it super helpful to not try to lead from a place of position, but from a place of persuasion. So where they willingly followed, not just like felt like compelled to yeah. uh, and obliged to follow me because I'm so-and-so's daughter. Oh yeah. I remember, you know, people in, in the office saying to me, Sanger, that, you know, they, they had worked there longer than you had been alive. Yes. And, you know, and, and that (laughs) probably made it difficult to gain credibility when when you had positions that you, you know, that you wanted to make, you know, so forth. For sure. That made it hard. And, and you know what, some of it is like, I think that I was working that hard, not only to prove them wrong. I I also have to prove it to myself because the reality is I am self-aware enough to know that I would not be in this position if I wasn't fortunate enough to be born into the right family. And like, whether you're born into a family business, a lot of like, we have all been born into some level of privilege, right? Some people more than others. Some people have privileges that I don't have. Some people, I have privileges that some people don't have, but whether, you know, whether you think you're born into privilege or not, most of us, if you've got internet connection and are listening to this, have the have the time to just listen to a podcast, uh, your life is not as hard as a lot of people's in this world. And that alone is a privilege. Hey, man, how can I make the most out of what God has given me? God gave me a life where I, I don't have to go find clean water today. If that's the only privilege that you can think that you have, you still have a privilege over half the world. That's incredible. How can I work so that I do not squander that? How can I honor what I've been given and make the most out of it? Because that's the only option as far as I'm concerned is to say, these are the privileges that I was given, whether it was being born in a family office. Shoot, I was born in the United States of America. That's a privilege. Mm. I was born into a two-parent household in the United States of America. I was Mm. born into a lot of things that have helped me. The only option I have is to make the absolute most of those. And you know, it's funny you say that a lot of my clients grapple with this as well. And this feeling like I won the birth lottery and I have, I of all people have no excuse to mess this up. And that can put a lot of burden and pressure on them to live up to certain expectations by the older generation, even though it can leave them feeling deeply, deeply unfulfilled and unhappy. So this feeling of, well, the next man wasn't born into, you know, like you said, born into a country where you've got internet access, but even compounded by that into an ultra high net worth family and doesn't have any, you know, any of those issues surrounding food on the table and, you know, being able to travel, spend time with family, but a lot of the clientele that I deal with are grappling with issues around what is my contribution in the world? How Mm -hmm. do I find my place, my unique place in the world and make a contribution, not just to what mom and dad built, but also to the world around me. And how do I navigate this thick fog of 
deep insecurity and lack of confidence because I feel like I just don't compare to my parents who were able to build this amazing business, who are great entrepreneurs. And I'm not even sure I've got it in me to do the same. That's what I often see. That had to be a big change to move from Nigeria to Austin. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I can't even imagine. Talking about transition. um, Yeah. Yeah, that's probably the biggest, well, not the biggest transition, but the most recent transition I've gone through. And why it was quite unique was, so I've moved three times internationally in my life at the age of nine from Lagos to London, or the UK rather, at the age of 24 from the UK back to Nigeria, and then um, last year from Nigeria to Austin. At the age of nine, my dad um, told us we were going on a family vacation and we didn't come back. So he staged a Yeah. We were British. Citizens. Hold on, I gotta know more about this. <laughs> yeah, you can't right. blow past that. <laughs> How does that work? <laughs> it works in that Nigeria was becoming very unsafe. We were British citizens. We had been born there, and he was just very concerned about the welfare of the kids and my mum. And so he went on a business trip to the UK for about five months and was secretly bought a house and bought a car, chose schools and everything. And then we went on a vacation, and then. But like, when are we going back home? You're not. This is your life. And that was like a slam dunk into transition to the UK. And then when I moved back to Nigeria as well, um, after my um, I qualified as a CPA at Deloitte, I was like, I think I'm just going to go back for three months. I just mm. want to see like what dad's been doing and just get exposure to the business. And then I want to go back to the UK and apply to business school. And then I ended up spending 10 years. So... This move to Austin was like the first conscious move where I'm like, yes, I'm making an international move. And myself and my husband made that decision together. So it was a, a big moment. I felt like I I, I had the um, agency for the first time with respect to a huge life transition. But it, it came with, honestly, I... 95% of like still would have made the same decision over and over again. And it's been phenomenal, but of course it came with its complexities. Um, myself, and my husband, we've got two young boys age now seven and five. They thrived. They adapted like no business. They started nice. new schools and they're, they're great. Right. Um, my husband got a job at AWS and has been doing well there as well. But then I had to pivot my business from one that was focused on Africa to one that is now focused on the US. And yeah, that that was probably the hardest part of the move was also leaving the family enterprise, no longer the leader of the family office, leaving a tribe, leaving a community. I'm very much a collaborator and I found it yeah. quite isolating working on my own. But nonetheless, it's been a phenomenal journey and I would do it over and over and over again. Why did you end up in Austin? Yeah, Austin, because we found it to be, when we were deciding to move to the States, we're like, we want to go somewhere where we've never been before. So my husband had spent about 15 years in the US uh, before we met and uh, wanted somewhere where we could start a new life together. That was great to bring up kids, good education, 
a friendly place, not too big a city, um, but great opportunities. And somewhere that was no airs, no frills, just come as you are and was quite an accessible place. And so we heard great things about Austin during the pandemic from a number of friends that had that were based in New York and San Francisco and had seen a lot of their friends leave <laughs> and right. move to Austin. And so we're like, let's go check it out. And so we flew out for 10 days um, in March last year and we, we, we loved it. We're like, we can thrive here. And we moved in July and we've been thriving here. Well, that's a, it's a great place to live. You know, just make sure you don't root for the University of Texas while you're yeah. there. If any, as long as you don't wear burnt orange, we can stay friends. <laughs> we will stay friends then. I'm not. A fan All right, of perfect. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing now. You are working with the transitions from founders to next gen. And I'm not so interested in the particulars of the business transition, but how somebody goes through the framework of making those decisions because there are big decisions to make. When do you start start preparing? How do you get out? Right. How do you do that transition? How do you make sure that person is prepared? There are so many, but what are you finding are the difficult decisions in those transitions? Oh my gosh, where do we start? Quite often folks are not necessarily intentional about transition planning and usually it's when it's it's forced upon them so sickness or death unfortunately mm. is when we're usually pulled into the room and then to help like shut like plan and to sort out like the mess but that being said um, when people tend to be a lot more forward thinking intentional um, future focused and wanting to plan there's a lot of question around my next generation don't care about this business how in the world are we going to pass it on and leave a legacy because i want to leave a legacy um and so there's question around what how do you define legacy right um as a founder versus how does the next gen see things do they necessarily want to take over a manufacturing plant and lead that or is there an opportunity to have like you had a partial sale or a full sale and think more broadly around a legacy of the family, perhaps through philanthropy, impact investing, empowering the next generation to become entrepreneurs in their own right. These are the conversation I often have to facilitate amongst family is really co-creating what's the legacy we want to be leaving and what's the legacy we want to be living. Other difficult conversations in this space is around equity and equality. So often founders will want um, each child to have equal shares and whatever they're leaving behind, but that might not necessarily be fair because say, for instance, the one that's been working in the business and contributed even more, are they deserving of the same shareholding as the ones that mm, never mm -hmm. did? How do you navigate conversations around that? Other tricky conversations is the role of in-laws or step-parents and things like that. How do we, now, who is family? Who do we consider as family? And what is our rights and rituals of welcoming them in? What's the process to kind of educate them and keep them aware of yeah. what's going on? 
Are they going to be decision makers in whatever capacity? Are they going to be able to work in the business or not, or the, the foundation or the family office or, or what have you? And honestly, I've seen all sorts. I've seen cases where families will have just like a forum where in-laws can meet with the family to learn and be educated on what's going on. But I've also seen instances of where in-laws are allowed to work in the business and are CEOs of the family office or the family business and honestly, do an impeccable job right so it really is depending is dependent on what the founder and the family wants um and there's no cookie cutter answer to that yeah there there never can be right i think a lot of times we we end up with cookie cutter results because people focus in these big life transitions whether it's a generational transfer of a business or or any other life transition we focus on the how first right okay so so how are we gonna do this well what do you mean by this what are we even doing what are we doing right and and if we don't understand what we're doing then there's no chance that we even understand why we're doing it in the first place you know kind of an ode to simon sinek's golden circle we've got to start with why are we even talking about this business transition why are we even talking about mom and dad's will right now right forgetting what what am i going to get out of it you know how are we going to make sure this is equitable well why are we even talking about it in the first place because maybe like you were saying the why the answer to that why question means that equitability doesn't matter right or or can't possibly be an outcome because the why is is something that is is unrelated to that and so many times we focus on life transitions without understanding why they're important to us or, or, or why, what we are seeking to truly achieve. What is really, what is really the thing that matters most? What are the values and the principles that we're going to operate by through this time? And so we focus on how, all right, so we need to get a succession plan. Let's go. Right. What? <laughs> what? What are we talking about? Hey, uh, I'm going to invite, you know, the kids and the grandkids over and, and we're going to talk about mom and dad's will. For, for what purpose? Right. Um, because that's going to guide a lot of a lot of decisions as an advisor. I see it all the time. You know, people come in and, and talk to me uh, wanting to talk about how we're going to get the returns better. Well, um, you know, maybe they, they have an advisor. They're not happy. They want to hire me. All right, so so how are we going to get better returns? Why why do you want better returns? And that, a lot of times they look at me like I have three heads. Like, well, that's obvious. I ask the question five, six, seven, eight times in a row, and finally I get to a real answer. Oh well, it's because I want my children to be able to have an impact. Right. And if I don't grow my wealth, then they're going to be focused on survival and not impact. Oh, geez. Okay. Well, what kind of impact? What does that impact look like? You know, what is, what is their idea of impact? And now we're having a totally different conversation that, that doesn't look anything at all like, you know, uh, should we hire this investment manager or that one? That, that, that all of a sudden, that does not matter. Right. Um, so I, I think what you do is fascinating because it gets, it helps people unlock that purpose. Uh, the purpose of the generational transfer um, isn't just to do it. It's not just to keep it going, keep this business going for for the sake of keeping it going, because you could sell it to a non-family member. Right. You could shut down shop. Why are you even, why is inter 
family transfer, why is that even, why is that the decision that you've already made? <laughs> what do people say when, when you talk to them about that question? Usually they'll say to leave a legacy. Yeah. And then the next question is, well, what does legacy mean to you? Because legacy means different things to different people, right? Um, quite often um, for a founder, it's to see the continued operations of the business and for it to be within the control of the family. But if you ask the next generation, you may hear something completely different. It is, I want to take on board mom and dad's entrepreneurial skill set, knowledge, intelligence, and use that as part of like my arsenal of resources to leave a positive impact on the world. So they're seeing it as how can I use the platform of the family, history, wisdom, intelligence to find my place in the world, to use this mm -hmm. as like a, um, a board on which I jump off and, and soar into my right place in the world. Very different, right? So what does legacy mean to each of us? And then what is our, sh our clear articulated shared legacy that we want to be not just leaving, but we want to yeah. be living. And it's back to what you were saying um, around values, like getting very clear, like who are we as individuals and who, what does it mean to be in the Smith family? Like what, what do we stand for? What's our overarching vision as a family, not just as a business, because quite often business families will focus so much on the business. We want to expand. We want to do this. We yeah, want we want to grow. We we wanna... Wanna... <laughs> new office, new city, new right. product. No, no. How about we want to build connection? We want to have harmony within the family. We, we want to build trust amongst each other. We want to learn together. We, you know, those are equally as important um, as the business outcomes, right? And then what's our shared mission? How are we going to get there? A lot of the work that I do is really around that, like getting folks to get clear on their individual vision, values, mission, and then cultivating, aligning on what's our shared vision, mission, values as a family. And what legacy do we want to be not just leaving, but living? You know, I, I think you're so right. I was having a conversation a while back with a friend of mine who runs a pretty successful business and he was faced with a decision to say, you know, should I, he was at an age where he was deciding, do I want to cut back or do I want to ramp up? Hmm. And he was really struggling with that because he <clears throat> could make quite a bit of money by ramping up and sort of replicating this, this business that he, that he had. And so I just started asking the questions. <laughs> I was saying, well, why, why do you want to do that? And, and he had a sort of a reflexive answer at first. Well, you know, I can make much money. I can do, you know, I can do pretty well. And, you know, we're printing money here and I don't know why I wouldn't do that again. I just kept asking him why, hmm. why do you, why do you want to do that? And, and I think it's similar to the question that you're bringing up around defining what is legacy, right? right? So it's, it's not just defining what is legacy in, in the, in Webster's dictionary, but what does it mean to you? What are you, what are you trying to accomplish? Yeah, not what is a legacy? What's your legacy? Right. right. What does a successful legacy look like for you, for your you, family? Well, why is right. that, why is that important? Right. Yeah. Because you could just sell the business. Mm -hmm. Right. You could just sell it. Right. Yeah. And then, and then your legacy would just, you know, slide over a, a bucket of cash to your kids. There you go. Well, and it could be more than that, you know, could, or whatever. You could, you could say, I'm going to use this, this capital and apply that to a legacy in a different way it's going to mm -hmm. look different than maybe it's 
hey, we're a family that we stick together. We have very deep family relationships. We have a type of relationship that's different than other families because we work together and working together, regardless of what we're doing, is the legacy. Indeed. How, how are you helping people figure that out? Because that seems like a crucial point is how are you figuring out what is sort of the legacy they want to leave or why that's important to them? Through introspection and through inquiry, like understanding their values, they need to gain clarity of who they are, what they stand for, what matters, really matters to them, and what is the contribution they want to bring to the world as individuals. And then kind of right-sizing that and bringing that conversation together as a family, like finding the touch points and the alignment points. Because what may be my desired legacy may, may create a burden on a family member. So if a founder says, um, my legacy is I want my children to work in the family business and to lead it and take it to the next generation. Um, and the children have zero interest or don't feel competent or, you know, to do so. Right. If we were to take that legacy as the objective legacy, um, it's not inclusive. It's not a collective legacy that of collective future success for all the family members to contribute. So there are instances where, you know, your legacy may create so-called issues for other family members. How can we find a way in which, you know, we can include the family members, but also energize them and inspire them along that journey as well? So something that resonates with their values as well, their interests and their strengths. That, yeah, that sounds a lot like the dad who wants his son to be a doctor. Exactly. I want you to be a doctor. (laughs) Oh, geez, I don't want to be a doctor. (laughs) I hate med school, (laughs) you know, and and everybody has known somebody that or or been a victim of that parenting, right? Oh, geez, I guess I got to do this, right? Um, And I think even like even very encouraging parents uh, uh, unintentionally are going to kind of guide their children towards what's familiar to them. Like, hey, this is what I did. This is how I was successful. These are the values that got me to where I was in life. And I'm gonna, they're going to have a bias towards that. Well, I, I think you're going to have a bias as a parent and as a founder who's transitioning that, that you want to make sure your kids are doing something that's going to give them the most options in the future, to give mm. them the most security. Um, you're not super interested in, in what, you know, if this makes you happy, you know, you always hear that, you know, oh, yeah, don't pursue no. that if it makes you happy. I don't know any parents who advise that. I do. Uh, really? I do. Yes. They, and they, I but want they, my kids here's just to go the do this crazy yes, thing. Yes, yes. And they are, they, they're not, that sounds foreign to you because it's not what you did. Exactly. Because right. <laughs> right. you didn't do that. But I do know people who go talk to your sister. Okay. Tell, that is how she parents her kids. She doesn't care what they do. Wait, what do you mean? Go talk to your sister. Talk to your, my aunt, your <laughs> sister. Oh, me. Go yes, talk to you. Oh, my sister. You. Okay. Okay. You. Your actual. My real life. My sibling. real life yeah. sister. Okay. Your, all right. Your. So <laughs> she would encourage her children to do anything as long as they were passionate about it. And that's what she did. She said, I'm going to move to Colorado and be a teacher. Right. She didn't care if she was going to make a million dollars. She didn't care. She wasn't guided by financial stability and security. She said, mm-hmm. I know I'm going to live there. I want to be by the mountains. It's beautiful there. And I like teaching because I can have an impact on the future generation. Boom, done. And if her kids came and said, hey, I want to be an artist, she'd go love it. And something I want to just throw there, throw a spanner in the works is quite often founders will look back on their lives. Like what I did to get me here 
is what my kids should do to get them to that same destination and that's not necessarily true the world is changing the business has changed so you know our inclination to stick to what we know is just you know wanting to stay in com- the comfort zone so and I'm not necessarily saying that your sister's way of raising her child is necessarily the best way who knows like w- what is the right way I-, I think parenting is all just one huge gamble and experiment anyway we'll find out when my kids are 18 whether I'm doing it <laughs> we'll check in in a while <laughs> <laughs> right so but I just job. think that like the world has changed so much and so if we look back to the way I did this got me here and that's the way my next gen should do this to get them there I don't think it's necessarily going to be effective. Do you see that in family businesses, particularly where they're transferring from the founder to the next gen, not, you know, the grandson to the great grandson, but the the founder and the founder had a a unique experience, right? The founder had to grind her teeth on on the pavement and just uh, grit it out and make this business out of nothing. Right. I don't. Well, I don't think well, grind your teeth on the pavement. Is a that phrase. not what you That's said? Not a phrase. Okay. Well, let me continue <laughs> with the point. The you can, on the what do you say? That's then? it's nose to the grindstone, not Whatever. teeth on the pavement. I don't know. I, grinding. Maybe you got curb stomped on your way to. Yeah, I don't know, know what you. Whatever. Doing. You know what I mean. I'm not sure. You know what I mean. <laughs> Work really hard. Okay. Sometimes we got to dumb it down for Sean. <laughs> You're the one who said teeth on the grindstone. No, no, I didn't say that. I said teeth on the pavement. That's okay. A, all right. That's a that's a phrase that we're sticking with. Whatever. All right, go with it. So we, you have a founder says, "Hey, I had this experience. I was knocking on doors. You know, I was cold right. calling people. I was, you know, I was out there cutting the lumber myself. I was building the houses." by golly and they say to the next generation you got to go do that same thing right what do you see that a lot i see that all the time and that's what i was alluding to is that they're in a different dispensation entirely so you went from humble beginnings into wealth and you built up the successful business and now the next generation's role is to steward it and potentially multiply it it requires a completely different skill set um, and so the skills of, you know, you know, grinding the pavement or whatever the terminology is, it's not necessarily the skills that the next generation needs to have right now. So the next generation may now start thinking about how we're going to expand everything mom and dad have built into new mm-hmm. product services or new markets or how we're going to bring on board new joint ventures or think through new investments and how we're going to, you know, these are the conversations and these are strategic decision making that don't necessarily require much tactile day-to-day operational grinding mm-hmm. so yeah so i often tell founders your next generation need more structured learning and very precise skill building decision making leadership communication um, strategy governance um being able to read financial statements, their their skill set is very different. Yeah, they might need to develop a skill set that you never had. Right. And never had to have, (laughs) didn't need to have. I I think even families deal with that a lot, even if there's no family business at all, right? You kind of hear this a lot. Well, I shoot, I worked my summers and I paid for college myself. Well, okay. <laughs> you know, that way that you became successful is not necessarily the way that your son or grandson is going to become successful. It's a different world. And, and 
I think both, it seems like both generations need to do a better job of understanding and saying, Hey, you know, if, if, if I'm talking to someone who became successful doing through this one path, yeah, they're probably going to have a bias toward that one path. Um, at the same time, there's probably something that I can learn from that path instead of just saying, oh, the world's different now. Right. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about, dad. And, and and the older generation can say, hey, well, the world's different. How, what are, what's actually true about what I'm saying? If I'm telling my son, hey, I worked, I worked to pay for college myself, you know, at McDonald's, you can too. Am I, is it really about working at McDonald's to pay the bills while you're in college? Or is there a value there that is more important that I'm trying to instill? Right. And I find it super helpful. And it goes both ways, by the way, the learning and the, it, it can go both generations is to help um, when I facilitate family meetings is to have them each share like their lifeline. So look back at, at your life and like three pivotal moments, three highs, three lows. And let's unpack that. Like, what did you learn from that? Like, what, how has that built, you know, developed you to become who you are today? And by sharing that, perhaps there's some key core values that you hold dearly that you want to share with the next generation. And it's then up to them to use what they wish to with those key lessons learned and vice versa. Both the next generation can also share what they've learned and and so on and so forth. So we develop this kind of bank of intellectual property and tangible knowledge within the family. Like how did we, how did we get through like the trials? That's such a good idea. Right. The early days That's of the business, that was so tough that we rarely talk about. We don't like to talk about in business families. Like, how did you get through that? And start, it uncovers and allows for just better dialogue um, and more meaningful, purposeful conversations within the family. Yeah, that's such a such a great point. Right. We, we've all heard the um, what was it the book by I forget his name, Abbott. Uh, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves, right? right. Uh, wealthy family will you know, build up wealth. And then by the third generation, it's all gone because the son saw his father build, build everything. And he saw what went into it, but he doesn't, maybe he wasn't there in the very, very beginning stages. And then grandson only saw dad. He didn't see granddad. And so he really didn't see what, what made this successful. And, and so eventually all that hard work and the, the work ethic, it, it's kind of lost because there's this sense of complacency. But when you codify that like institutional knowledge, right? We would all do that in a business that so we need to know what made us successful. You do that within the family. That's so smart. It's almost it's like almost so obvious. <laughs> I'm like, you know, how how are you helping them how are you help families codify what's really important that they want the next generation to know? Mm. Really getting folks just on a meta level to understand that we need to work on the business of family to successfully transition across generations. We need to really understand what is our, like with firm, with businesses, like they know their culture they know like their values, they know their mission, they know their vision. And like you said, they've got a process of knowledge sharing and institutionalizing their memory. And we need to do the same thing as families. We need to start having conversations to get to know one another. We need to evaluate the resources we have within the family. And that goes beyond just financial resources, knowledge, 
capital, for instance, social capital, um, human capital. We measure that and we know where there's areas for improvement. Is it that we need to learn more of the structural stuff, like how to understand trust and all this stuff? Or, yeah. or is it that we need to help the next generation na- navigate their unique place in life? Or is it that we need to work on some learning together or some having fun together? So we, we, we get very intentional in tracking and measuring that and then action steps to addressing that. Yeah, I would, I would think the people taking over a business or the next gen, once all of that becomes clear, they're going to have to wrestle with, is, is this what I want to accept? Is this what I want? Is this a legacy I want to live? If you're sharing mm-hmm. with me, these are my values. These are, you know, this is our purpose. This mm-hmm. is what this business is about. This is what this family is about. I think that next generation has to say, do I want to take that torch and run with it? Right. That's why it has to be a collective conversation where everyone has buy into these are our shared values. These are this is our shared vision. This is our shared purpose. So it's not dad is dictating to me, but this is the team. This is what we all have buy into. Do you remember the moment when you realized that this is where the true work was in legacy planning and not in trust and investment in all the minutiae oh god the moment i don't remember the precise moment but there was one particular client of mine and it hit me like a ton of bricks so her father was late and they had several operating businesses foundation and he had done legacy planning so he pulled in his attorney and trusts and foundations and things and he passed away and then left the siblings. Two of them were married, um, four siblings. Two were married with kids. And only one of the kids had worked with him in the business. And here they are supposed to be carrying on dad's legacy, but they could not actually come together and have make decisions that were productive without conflict. They just constantly kept on squabbling because each had their own idea of what dad would have wanted. Each had their own idea of what would have been important. Each had their own idea of what they needed to focus on. And this squabbling turned into repeatable conflicts where they were now not able to take decisions together and it threatened the survival of the siblings partnership. They stopped having meetings. Each wanted to sell their share. And how do you do that with say joint family homes and things like that? And it was then that I realized that quite often in the industry, we speak in the language of the technical and not enough in the language of Mm -hmm. the relational. And the relational actually is the foundation. We need to think about how do we make joint effective decisions together what is our collective purpose and vision like you spoke to? Like, what is that higher why? You know, what are our shared vision, our shared mission, our shared values? And then go into the tactile. How do we equip the family members to be able to achieve that? Yeah, I love that. I, I want to second <laughs> that, that point a thousand times. We spend so much in the technical and not enough in the relational. I've had that experience as an advisor as well. Somebody, I say, hey, you know, let's figure out what's really the purpose of your money, what's going to happen when you pass away. You know, what does it mean that you've amassed this wealth and what does it mean for you and your children and your children's children? Well, yeah, I already met with an attorney, got all that, got the trust set up. That did not answer my question at all. <laughs> that, that, in fact, actually, it did answer my question. It told right. me that you haven't done it. Right. Because right? <laughs> right. if, if the answer is, I got the trust set up, 
well, you told me the how. You've not right. told me the why. We don't. Why did you even get the trust set up? Well, so we don't have to go to probate. Oh, geez. Well, that is. That's we're still so far off, right? What are we? What are we really trying to accomplish? What do you really want it to look like when you're not here? You in that scenario, you came in after Dad founder has already passed. Do you find that people are the younger generation is more receptive to? this type of thought process than the older generation or is it equal or is it reversed? I guess, does it matter? It becomes a lot more complicated when the founder's not in the room because then the next generation have their spouses, each have their own strong opinions. When the founder's in the room, he or she's able to kind of like moderate and be like, no, 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 we're not going down that route. That's not, you know, and everyone just kind of typically will conform. Yeah. And but but now it's just like you've got to think through four branches of the family essentially and it gets a lot more complicated. So I always encourage folks to start planning like start the legacy planning whilst the founders alive. Um that's ideal. We can obviously do it when the next generation um come into siblings partnership assuming they're aligned it's it would be easier but where they're not and they have completely different viewpoints different priorities different values it can get quite complex yeah the founder not being present almost makes it impossible i would imagine you know um i would imagine that story where you're saying each of the four children have their own idea of what you know mom and dad would have wanted that it suspiciously sounds a lot like what they would have wanted um, okay. <laughs> on their own, you know, it's like, it, it's kind of like growing up in the church, um, where people would say, well, that I f- just, God really Holy called Spirit. me to, right. to, to go, you know, <laughs> Holy to go backpack through Europe this summer. It's like, oh, okay, really? <laughs> you just want to do that? <laughs> yeah, that that's convenient. God didn't call you to go, you know, work construction. <laughs> right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I love that. That's um it Nikkei, any last pearls of wisdom? I would say just invest in spending time together and having purposeful conversations, being very intentional to find the time, not just in the diary, but the emotional space in your hearts um to also bond on the more purposeful why we're doing this. What's the compelling reason for us to stay in business together um or to stay yeah. investing together to reflect on that? It's, it seems like an interesting question, right? Cause it's almost like, so why are we still a family? Right. And, and you know what? I don't know. I've not had that, that conversation. That might be a question that's worth asking. Like, why are we, why are we still a family? Right. And it, it's, I, I love these questions that have obvious answers or seemingly obvious answers. Like, why do you want to get, why do you want to get a better return? Well, duh, it can make more money. Why, why do you want to stay a family? Well, cause we're a family. What does it even mean? What does it mean to be a family? Right. What does it mean? You know, what are you actually doing? Well, we're, you know, we're, we're all related. What does that mean? <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you have the same ancestor somewhere up the family tree. What does it mean to stay a family? Right. It means to, I'm going to continue to have a relationship with the people who I have a shared ancestor, but why? Why? And I'm not saying, I'm not asking the question to say that you shouldn't do that. I think you should. I I think that most people probably can't articulate 
what they're doing, right? Oh, well, I'm carrying on the legacy of great granddad. Well, what is the legacy of great granddad? What is the legacy of that, that common ancestor that we have? So if my cousin and I, we're going to stay together, you know, we're going to struggle through bad, bad times and good times and make sure that we never lose sight of the relationship that we have as family. What does it mean to be a family right. in the context of this relationship that I have with this one person? I think you are uniquely suited to to be of value in that space. And people who find your work are, are very lucky. Like I said, Sean and I, we survived it. <laughs> wish wish that wish that we had sat down and had a conversation with you before before we got to this point. But is it ever too late for people to No. No. I mean, I often ask, what's at stake? Right? If you don't plan, there's a lot at stake. So it's never too late. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Well, thanks so much for being here. This was that uh, man. I this was awesome. I I love talking about legacy and and redefining. I think we're we're really at a unique place, like cu- culturally, where we've been given the freedom to kind of think beyond the how. Right. You know, I mean, you have to have some degree of success to think beyond the how. Because in some ways, the how is survival, right? If we're focusing, to call back to what we were talking about earlier, if we're focused on how are we going to get clean water today, I'm not spending a whole lot of time sitting around the campfire discussing why clean water is so important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're trying to not die, man. Come on. Um, mm-hmm. If we're focused on the, the how, when we've already achieved survival. Exactly. exactly. Then then we, then we we're missing the... the we're we're squandering the privilege that we have. The privilege that we have is that we don't have to focus on how to pay the bills this month. We don't have to focus on whether or not we're going to end up on a welfare program because we ran out of money. We're not focused on that. We're not worried about that. That's not a realistic possibility for for me or my family or my children, my children's children, et cetera. Okay, so then now we can stop with the how and go back to the why. For some people, why I show up to work is because I got to pay the bills. And if you're at a place where paying the bills is not why you're showing up to work anymore, then you got to ask yourself why you're, why you're showing up. Right. I love what you said, squandering the privilege that we have. It's beautiful. Tell everyone where they can find your work. Right. You can find me on my website, www.nikeanani.com. There I've got links to, I've got a podcast myself, The Connected Generation, um, where we talk about all things legacy wealth and legacy businesses links to my book lifetime to legacy there's a short video on there and there's some sample chapters and link to where you can find it on amazon and also links to my social media and email address if you'd like to get in touch awesome and we'll put all this in the show notes and make sure people can connect with you um very easily thank you nikkei thank thanks for being with us we appreciate it thank you so much that was really good my takeaway from our discussion with Nikkei was all about challenging the premise. You know, she she talked about defining a legacy and then circling back and understanding the why and understanding the what is the legacy? How do you define legacy? Who should carry on the legacy? And if I if I capsulize all of that, it's really around challenging the premise. If I if I bring that forward to simpler decisions, let's say that you're deciding to I want to buy this car or that car. How about challenge the premise and say, do you need a car at, at all? Uh, if I'm deciding, do I go to this college or that college? 
let's challenge the premise and say, do you need to go to college? So she really brought it back to understanding the why, understanding the definition, understanding, making sure there's a meeting of the minds. And I think that's really important when you're making decisions is to, in a respectful way, just challenge the premise of the decision you're even making. I want to second all of that. That was great. I really took away that the why is important, why we do the things that we do. It's not everything has an obvious answer. And, and we kind of move through life as if the purpose of what we're doing is obvious and doesn't even need to be stated. So uh, when we're moving through big decisions, it's even more important to understand the purpose of what we're doing. And we hear that a lot in, in these takeaways and, and in our episodes, we come to that conclusion a lot. The why is important. The values are important. I would say that what I really concluded after talking with Nikkei is that the bigger the decision, the more important it is to understand the why and the purpose and to really spend some time with that because it's rarely as obvious as I might think it is. It's rarely the first answer that I can come up with. The more precise I can be, the more thoughtful I can be, the better chance that I have of achieving fulfilling results. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.